Well, hello there, and welcome to my third episode of the Embodied Healing Journey podcast. My name is Kendra Ties, and I am super passionate about supporting others on their healing journey. Today, I was fortunate enough to get to interview my teacher, Myrna Martin. Before I share this interview with you, I would like to remind you that I'm still really new at recording and creating podcasts, and I've only interviewed a few people using Zoom. And um, I would like to acknowledge that the beginning of this podcast was a bit rough, audio-wise. You may not notice much because I'm making some changes in editing as we speak, but you might notice a jump in the audio, and it's because some, some things went wrong. I don't know exactly what happened, but... I've been attempting to record these interviews on a software program on my computer, and when I went back to listen to it, the audio was all messed up. So luckily, on the advice of a really good friend of mine named Carlo, he told me, Kendra, if you do interviews on any platform, make sure you have some sort of backup recording. So I've been using Zoom, and I've been hitting record, like a... I've been having Zoom record the audio. And in this case, I am so glad I had this backup because otherwise it would have been really painful to listen to what had been recorded. And I would have been crying on the floor of my home office because this interview was really important to me. And because I'm new at this and was a bit nervous, I didn't hit record on the Zoom backup audio until Myrna was maybe a minute or two into speaking. So I will tell you what I was talking to her about in this recording. I will play back a piece of the bad audio that's the beginning of her response, and I think it's clear enough that you'll hear what she's saying, and then you'll notice the audio jump from being not as good too slightly better for the rest of the interview. So I just wanted to mention all of that. I'm aware I'm going to continue learning how to get better at this process. So now I'm going to share with you what I was saying to Myrna before she responded. I started by telling Myrna how I understand what my perception of embodiment is. I told Myrna that I have called this podcast the Embodied Healing Journey because my personal journey was one of feeling like I went from being in a not as healthily embodied state into a more embodied state. And throughout this podcast, I plan to explain that a little bit more. That's one of the intentions of talking about it. And Myrna is the teacher that I learned from that helped me transition from that less embodied state to a more embodied state. That being said, I felt like I needed to explain to Myrna how I perceive what I've learned from her or how I have filtered it through my own experience so that we could start the discussion by her clarifying or differentiating or or letting me know her perspective. What I shared with her is I said that before I met Myrna and took her pre and perinatal program, I believe that I was less connected to my body in a healthy way. I felt I was more prone to dissociation and therefore not really connected. 
And when I was feeling sensations in my body, I was wondering, like looking back now, I'm wondering what sensations I was attuned to and if they were really telling me the truth about what was going on. As we talk about in the interview, what happened in the earlier stages of our life can affect our perception of safety and from what I understand, also our way of relating to how our body feels, like the sensations our body is giving us. When I say sensations, I might mean a tight stomach or a racing heart or those kinds of things that happen in our body and how we perceive them and make meaning of what they are. So then I went on to say to her that my understanding of embodiment, although I'm still exploring it and I'm looking forward to hearing her describe it, is that when we are given the opportunity to connect with our body in a supported and safe environment, the opportunity comes to shift the relationship to these sensations or maybe come into contact with them for the first time. It also creates a possibility to rewire our neurobiology and also rewire our relationship to our body and to other people. So I just wanted to let Myrna know what my understanding of embodiment is. And so here she is responding to what I just said. Right. Um, I would say it's not just sensation, though. It's the emotional content feeling tones that go with the sensations. So it's, it's the thoughts, the feelings, and the sensations. Okay. This is why we need you here <laughs> to, to help bring language with these things that I feel like I struggle with um, describing. So thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And so all these levels... Right. that require like a reintegration or a new relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, my uh, first my first question is just actually if you're willing to share a little bit of your history how you came to be where now in your life with uh, being one of the leaders of teaching the pre and perinatal model. And uh, I don't know, as far back as you feel like as is appropriate that kind of guided you and maybe some of the people you learned from along the way. Um, yeah, that would be awesome to share a bit of that. Okay. Well, um, really, my interest in the early years um, goes way, way back. In my first career, after I graduated from this training, working in a pediatric burn unit where we were actually allowed to let the parents see the children because they were all in strict isolation. And that just emotionally felt so wrong to me that I used to sneak the parents in on afternoon shift because it, it just did not feel right. And through that experience, I decided I can't work in a hospital 
where these kind of draconian rules are in place that there, I couldn't see any logical reason why the parents couldn't put on isolation gowns, masks, and come in and have short visits with their children. So that motivated me to go to university, get my degree in nursing, and work in public health. And then I was working with moms and babies and children with disturbance in their life all the time. And just seeing the impact of difficult births on nursing, not nursing, uh, led me to decide to do a master's in family therapy, uh, which I did. And then I worked with families and um, really disturbed children after I graduated. And I was realizing more and more that it all came down to that really early time and what trauma the parents were carrying and how that was getting transmitted to their children. So then I began having my own children, which of course was a real um, shift in myself. And I discovered that I had a uterine abnormality that caused premature labor, uh, going right back to my own prenatal time and why that particular part of my body didn't form quite as it should have. And so my oldest daughter was born at um, 27 and a half weeks gestation. And she's 47 years old now. So at that time, that was right on the edge of viability. And even though I'd worked as a nurse in that particular uh, neonatal intensive care unit, I was not allowed to come in. I had to sit on the other side of a one-way mirror and see her across the room. And in those days, years ago, bright lights, no protection. And um, that was a, a traumatic experience for both of us. But I also got to see the health in the system because I just knew from my meditation practice, even then, that energetically I could hold her. So the other parents thought I was nuts, but I used to go to the NICU every day, take a sheet with me, sit right up to the one-way mirror, put a sheet over my head, and just project my energy around her. And she was there for seven weeks, and when I finally got to hold her for the first time and then take her home, it took us about a week to really establish nursing. But I knew that she knew me, even though we had this separation. And just to go to the health in the system as soon as I brought her home 
even though I didn't know anything that after a normal healthy birth, if the baby is allowed to rest on the tummy, they do what's called the breast crawl. And here after seven weeks and we were fully clothed, she did the breast crawl. And it, she was vocalizing and both her father and I felt like she was telling us all about her experience in the NICU. And so looking back on that, that really convinced me, you know, that this was a vital time. Then yeah. I lost a baby who was born too early, who only lived a few hours. And my other two living children, both were preemies. But I spent six months in bed in the pregnancies with them, and I was able to carry them a little bit longer. But with my youngest, my son, he was a twin, and I miscarried his twin at the 16th week. And I didn't really understand the impact on him. And in part of me, I was somewhat relieved because when I knew I was pregnant with twins, I was afraid of losing them both. That right. I would go into labor way too early and they wouldn't be able to survive. But of course, his experience was one of great loss. And when he was born, he was the most dysregulated baby that I've ever met. And he was just so difficult to settle. Um, and by then I supposedly was the expert and I didn't know what, how to settle him. And so I vowed when he was older and I could study more that I was going to find some place to study um, the events of what happens in the womb and early and how they how babies and families can be helped. So um, I eventually discovered William Emerson, who was one of the founders of pre and perinatal work in North America. And he had studied with Frank Lake in England. And I did um, 57 days of training with him, but I didn't, his style of doing the work really didn't fit well with me. And I realized uh, that I thought the cathartic nature of the way he was working at that time uh, didn't, wasn't right for me. And through, eventually I discovered um, Ray Castellino and I spent about 10 years studying with him, going down to California all the time. And he had developed what for me was safer, more regulated ways of working. So from that time on, I was still um, 
I was director of mental health services where we live. And it was important for me to have that kind of regular Monday to Friday job to support our family and to be mostly at home with my children. But really the day my son graduated from high school, that young baby, I resigned from that position and began doing the pre and perinatal work full time. Yeah, I'd had a small part-time practice in it, but I really didn't have time in my life to really devote myself to it until my own children were grown and going on to university. So that's when I began. And within a year and a half, I started my own first training in Nelson. And I'm now on my ninth full two and a half year training and planning a 10th. So that's Um, kind of my history with it. Thank you so much. I have, as you know, I've heard snippets of the history with your children. And um, as I sat here and listened this time though, in this way, I was taken on this little emotional roller coaster and so touched by um, these experiences you and your children had. I just kind of felt like I took it in, in a new way. And I also appreciate your, your passion for wanting to know more about all these events. Yeah. And and how, how do you actually heal these events? How do you actually work with this kind of trauma? Because not just my family, but scores of families are going through these really difficult times. And there's very little knowledge in the mainstream, although it is getting better, about how to actually heal these issues. So this is one area where the personal and the professional are never separate because we were all prenates. We were all born. And those of us who have children, they also went through experiences. Some are optimal though. Not everyone has birth trauma, but fairly significant part of our population does in fact have that. And that experience in the womb and during the birth and in that really early time lay down a template for the rest of our life, how we are in relationship to ourselves, how we are in relationship to other people. And it totally affects also our capacity to learn how we cope with stress and our physiological health, you know, our cardiovascular health, our immune system health, respiratory, how we metabolize glucose, all those things are impacted by what happens to us in that very early time. So it's, it's a profound experience for our lifetime. How much of an impact that phase of our life 
has on us, especially because it is pre-explicit memory. And um, I also think it's a bit hard to articulate how these certain, um, I don't know how you just said it, but these certain templates how they become so strong in informing the rest of our life until we're somehow able to address those moments or moment in time where I guess I might word it this way. And then I'd love to hear how you would word it. I've kind of heard it described as like, as we're developing in that early time, in a way our brain and bodies doing this major R and D research and development on what the world is like. And if certain events happen, it's like the brain kind of decides in a certain moment, this is how the world is. I would like to avoid that feeling at all costs again, and I'm going to adapt in this way. And it kind of can become uh, the starting point of like a belief system about the world. Calling it a belief system almost makes it sound like a person just chose to believe it, but there's um, structures in the brain and actual like pathways being formed so anyway, I, I'm stumbling through trying to take what you're saying about these early experiences and, I don't know, put more words to how it ends up being a template. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you have a more eloquent way of describing that. Right. Well, um, I think so many of the neuroscientists in the last 20 years really have given us the language. And of course, most people listening to this podcast will have heard of Stephen Porges and the polyvagal system. And what we know is that human beings development is motivated by the need for love and safety. And that is the bottom line. And during the womb time, the birth, and that very early time, we are seeking safety primarily. And so if we're having experiences where we don't feel safe, and for a baby, safety is contact with their mom. So if we're left in a crib to cry, or we're put on a four-hour feeding schedule, then biologically, we are not safe. We are alone, and our amygdala, that emotional part of our brain, is recording uh, the last three months of pregnancy, the first three months of after our birth, the question in our, ourselves biologically and neurologically is, am I safe? Am I lovable? And in that six-month period, we are recording into our amygdala the answer to that. No, I'm not safe. Yes, I am safe. And then as we, our brain continues to develop, we get more and more sophisticated in that. um, And we develop these, what are called adaptations or compensation patterns to help us feel 
as safe as we can feel. So if our mom doesn't come to us uh, at two and a half hours when we cry the hungry cry, we have to teach ourselves to shut off those feelings of hunger. And the only way we have to do that as a baby is to dissociate out of our body. And we can only protest and cry for so long before that dissociation pattern takes over. And so that gets coded. Oh, I have to go away from my somatic sensations and my feeling tones to survive in this family. And as we're having that experience, based on that experience, we are growing the connections higher up in our brain, which up into the cingulate gyrus, the insula, which is then more reading the world from three to nine months. And that, if we feel safe, we are developing in a really positive way the structures in our brain that allow us to concentrate, to focus, to recognize what's known, what's not known, to feel comfortable. That's why around six, seven months, we develop separation anxiety from our mom because we really know what we like and don't like. And we don't like strangers. We don't like things that we don't know. And, um, but if we don't have that basis of safety, we don't grow those good connections. And then from nine months to 18 months, we're really developing our ability to be in the present moment and to calm ourselves down. So if we don't feel safe there, we don't develop strong connections up into our prefrontal cortex, which has the capacity to tell that amygdala, that fear center, oh, calm down. That isn't a gunshot. That's only a car backfiring and turn off the stress response. So we actually understand now how the brain developing in this first, you know, 21 months, we could say from mid-pregnancy to 18 months is actually coding in these compensation patterns um, based on our experience and especially our experience with those regular caregivers that um, are looking after us day in and day out. How responsive are they to us? And depending on that responsiveness, we shift our boot, our, and it's not fully cognitive, but we shift our belief about ourselves, about the world, and we shift our physiology. So we become not who we started out to be, but a 
response to what we've experienced. Oh, that's so good. All that information. <laughs> Thank you. I said One, a lot in a short time. Oh, it's fantastic. And you, and a question I was going to ask, um, kind of a bit given what's going on right now in the world, uh, people's relationship to safety, I was going to ask you, but you already answered it, about how some early experiences can affect uh, how the body responds to perceived safety. But what I, what I mean is, let me just collect my thoughts for a second. Um, oh, how, how some people have been led to believe that if we just tune into our body, it, is the, it could be like the seat of our intuition and it will tell us the truth about ourselves. And I actually think I might've been kind of guilty of that until recently where I learned a bit more or remembered some of what you taught around how, just like you described, depending on what was going on during that, especially three months before birth and three months after and how the amygdala, which is the part that kind of filters the safe unsafe, is that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if a, if a person had early experiences where, means that their amygdala almost perceives the world as unsafe right. on, on like, well, I, I don't understand how to describe it exactly, but it's like the, the way that person is seeing the world is through a filter of unsafe and their body, the sensations in their body might actually not always be accurate to what's going on in the real world because it's responding to almost like the wires got crossed Right. And, really young. and people won't know that unless they understand this really early time. Yeah. Right. And that's what we now call PTSD. It, it, it's developmental trauma. So it's really early. The events aren't necessarily remembered, but right. we can still have a traumatic response to it. And of course, um, people who have that early developmental trauma are more likely to develop um, traumatic reactions to later events because the, their world, just like you said, their experience of the world is coming through that original filter. But I do want to say here, we aren't stuck with what we got, you know, just because we had early difficult experiences as adults or even as children, teenagers, we, we can have new experiences that reteach our amygdala, reteach our brain that in fact now we are safe and we can receive what is called earned secure attachment. We can come to feel safe and lovable through having new experiences of safety. And those can come in family situations, in therapeutic situations. So, um, but what happens in, in a time like this, those early patterns can be quite far down and we can not be very affected by them 
in our day-to-day life. And then something like COVID-19 happens and we're under a lot of stress. Maybe we're not working. We're really worried about finances. And those patterns, the more stress we're under, the more they tend to come to the surface. I really appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to look, I haven't even barely looked at my questions yet because (laughs) everything's, all the questions are being answered, but I actually did want to speak to how you just mentioned how we're not stuck with these patterns and they can change. And I am a, I don't know what to call it, former student and, um, of yours. And I went through your two and a half to three year training and I can speak from experience that these patterns can change. I uh, had the opportunity to, I don't even know how to describe it, but change my life in many ways and go to those early places and have the opportunity through a model of safety and support things that I didn't even understand. And I still feel like I'm, I'm still integrating what safety and support means to me, but yeah, um, just have had a real life experience of, of this really beautiful, gentle model of changing patterns that were not serving me uh, based on some early experiences and working towards the earned secure attachment and all of that. And also, um, I have said to Myrna more than once, on more than one occasion, how I don't know what it was about my soul and my journey and my life, but since I was quite young, I remember really wanting to feel like I was getting to the root or the heart of why I was behaving the way I was in the world before I got to do the pre and perinatal work. All the insecurities and all the doubt and I don't know, like, a lot of lack of congruency in myself personally. And uh, after doing your, your three-year training and being supported by you and our colleagues along the way, I've said to her, you more than once, you know, I feel like this work got to the root of the beginning. And you've, you've responded to me a number of times saying you hear that a lot from people who've done this particular model of therapeutic work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's really what we're doing in the pre and perinatal work. We are um, creating the circumstances, that sense of safety that our bodies and, and our minds and our emotional bodies are willing to drop back into those early memories and um, re-experience them, but re-experience them in a different way. Because usually when those difficult experiences happened, we weren't in a safe environment with contact and support. We were alone. Like if our mom left us in the crib to cry when we were hungry, we were really alone. If we drop into that experience and we feel the fear, but we're not alone and we're in contact, that supports us to rewire that particular pattern in 
our brain. And so the healing process is really dropping into the somatic and the emotional body and having a new experience of that event that happened to us. And of course, in this work, we're looking at all three levels. We want to repattern our belief system, our cognitive level. We want to repattern our emotional level, and we want to repattern our somatic level. And what happens to people over time as they do this early work is they become less, I'll say, reactive and more coherent in the present moment. They're, mm -hmm. Because they've regrown the neural pathways from the amygdala up into the emotional, higher emotional levels and up into the prefrontal cortex, they're more able to just stay in the present moment and what's really happening without misinterpreting the situation as much. Right. Yeah, now that you mentioned, if you're still safe enough to go back to the place where you feel the feeling of the fear and how that was emotionally, uh, that you saying it that way helps really make sense why for a baby who might be experiencing that level of fear and feeling of being alone and the overwhelming feelings that eventually cause the dissociation that you said, it's kind of a survival mechanism to be, to check out from how overwhelming and frightening that is. Exactly. Um, yeah. It makes sense as adults walking around the world that if we're on some level reminded of that level of fear and overwhelm, it's just too much. And why would we avoid those feelings at all costs and distract ourselves or get do the things that we do to avoid feeling that level of fear and overwhelm? I don't, I don't know how much of it came from Ray or how much you've adapted the model of safety and support. One of my questions was going to be, um, yeah, I was going to say, why is safety such an important part of the process of healing? Um, but maybe what I'd like to ask more is to, speak a little bit of that principles of the circle, how, how in the work uh, we followed these principles that created safety, everyone agreeing, everyone present to the process was agreeing together to principles that created safety that allowed this deep work to happen. Yeah. Right. And probably one of the most important ones of those principles, you've already named the principle of the circle, because when we're a prenate or a young, very young child, we are part of a family system, many different varieties of family systems. And we do not have the energetic capacity to separate ourselves from whatever is happening in that whole family system. We don't develop that capacity. Some of us are 50 years old before we develop that capacity, but in a really healthy family system, by the time we're 15, 18 months, we begin to know, oh, that's my mom's feelings. And I might feel differently from my mom, right. but 
when we're younger than that, we are bathed constantly in a sea of what's happening within our family. So the principle of the circle, when we do this early work that we're all affecting each other is really important. And so we wanna be in mutual support and cooperation. Probably the other absolutely vital principle is the principle of slowing down because we know absolutely that our nervous systems speed up initially when things are difficult. And that's part of understanding the polyvagal system that our sympathetic nervous system activates. And we start up that slope to trauma. And so if we can slow everything down, it, it gives us the ability to actually integrate the experience rather than dissociate from it. And so in the pre and perinatal work, we have lots of positive support and regulation around the person in the experience. And we slow it down so that they can integrate what happened to them without dissociating. And of course, if in the actual original experience, we first tried to protest and then eventually we tipped over into our parasympathetic activation where we dissociate. And with babies, that tipping over happens quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with adults, we have more capacity to stay in, I won't even say fear, I'll say terror and I won't even say anger, I'll say rage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I was wondering if, so I don't know how this will fit in, but I've got, how would you describe embodiment or being embodied? Hmm. So I don't know, I'll just kind of see if you have a way of relating to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I think, what embodiment means to me is to be actually experiencing my life from my heart and from my whole body in a coherent way that I'm aware of my whole body. I'm aware of my feet, my legs, my hips, my breath, and I have um, a flow through my body and I'm able to experience the world in the present moment. And to me, that's what living our life from an embodied place really means. And um, being able to differentiate past from present so that actually I'm present in this moment and in touch with my soma, with my body and 
the feelings that are arising. Uh, being embodied doesn't necessarily mean being happy all the time. It could mean feeling really angry. It could be feeling really sad or fearful, but it's real and it's in connection with our physical sensations in, in our bodies and our emotions in our bodies, as well as our thoughts. So it's really that coherence of all levels of the polyvagal system. Mm. Yeah, I, I liked when you mentioned part of that is the ability to differentiate between what's going on in the present, even if that includes those feelings that don't feel good, Mm-hmm. It being about what's going on in the moment from differentiating from our past. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow, like, again, my personal experiences of living that uh, in real time, like having a conversation with my husband where I'm triggered and having to stay conscious enough of that that's happening and that I can begin to differentiate that I got to tell you you know this this is not easy stuff <laughs> like that. Not easy stuff especially no. <laughs> with our intimate partners or really intimate friends because those relationships automatically um, bring up what happened in our earliest in intimate relationships with our parents. So um, in this work, we talk about healing and is really when we're able to stay on what we call the leading edge, where we do feel triggered, we do feel activated, but we still have our adult witness. And we recognize that usually the intensity of our feelings right now is connected also to past events. So we can begin to modulate our response. Yeah. We don't have to completely freak out. We can (laughs) downregulate some and, and actually stay in the present moment and become clear about what's really happening. And that's the place that healing happens, where there's some activation, but we have enough safety, support, and enough witness that we can have a new experience. Yeah. Oh, I just love, I love how you describe everything, Myrna. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So before I ask this next question, I'm going to give a tiny bit of a history on, on me that I think, you know, but as to just, as to explain why I'm asking, and again, go wherever you want with, with it. Um, Before I met the pre and perinatal work, I had been seeking the answers in uh, more spiritual practices and realms. And I don't know if this, makes total sense, but one semi-conclusion, I don't like to make full conclusions, but of why I might've been drawn among many reasons, but why I might've been drawn to seek things in that spiritual 
realm may have had something to do with a very, very highly dissociative history. Mm -hmm. um, you know that just after I was born, I was put in an incubator, I think for a couple of days. Um, and that initial uh, experience probably was among the beginning, among other things, of why I had this highly dissociative pattern. And so when I look back at that, those times in my life, I see myself as somebody who left my body and the direction I picture going in is like up, <laughs> up and out. I don't know where we actually go, but that's kind of what it has felt like. And so I was, it felt easier to be in the up and out world for a long time. And yet I was not integrated with my body. My body was having all these experiences that did not feel good. And I didn't want to come back and hang out with those feelings. And so I was in the spiritual realm seeking answers. And um, I was satisfied by a few things in those realms. And one of them is a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. I also felt satisfied in the, in the realm of feeling like other people kind of got me. All those kinds of things that kind of can, can actually feel like they create a sense of safety for a person or that, that deep sense of belonging and feeling loved. But those things all happened for me in that environment. Uh, but I didn't feel like we ever really got to the heart of, of the healing. And when I look back now at some of those experiences, I, I probably still have some unresolved feelings around feeling a little bit betrayed by feeling led to believe that those were going to give me the answers mm -hmm. around, uh, around what I was seeking. And also when I look back now, I see it as being unintegrated, mm -hmm. some of it, and also um, compartmentalized a little too, like, or, or sometimes dr driving a person further from the separation from their body, because some spiritual practices get caught up in it being all about ascension and all about um, if you can overcome or change the thoughts and beliefs, which some of that's true, that it's going to magically change how you are in the world. And I guess in some practices, you do get to some of those places. But anyway, I'll stop rambling about that. But my question has been, um, for, for you, how do you, how do you relate to spirituality, if at, if at all? Or how does it fit in to a person's healing journey because everything you and I've talked about and most of what you've taught has all been based in research and we keep it grounded in, in the body and in these levels you're talking about being body, emotion, belief. Um, but yeah, is there anything to speak of for, for you on, on how any of this fits in? Yeah. Right. Well, you know that I've been a meditator and involved in various spiritual traditions since I was 20 as when I first began yeah. meditating and mindfulness meditation is a huge contributor in our healing because it's helping us grow those neural connections from our amygdala up into the prefrontal cortex. And in most um, Eastern traditions, people actually were securely attached. So they were 
for the most part uh, in yeah. the present moment before they right. were introduced, like even in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, you know, six, seven-year-olds were taught to meditate focusing on a candle burning. That would be their first initiation. And when some of the Buddhist teachers came to North America, they went after a few years, wow, these are a different kind of human beings. (laughs) They are not in their body. They are not grounded. So um, many of the traditions that um, they had to adapt their practices and people had to spend much more time just following their breath um, to help them get more grounded somatically before they could really move into the more advanced practices. And Chogyam Trungpa, one of those teachers, called trying to do these more advanced practices before you're actually grounded in, in the present moment in your life, he liked to call it spiritual materialism. Like, right. I like to uh, have these fantastical experiences where I go up and out of my body into a more dissociative space without um, really being present here. And so that kind of compartmentalization, like I can't cope with my everyday life. So I do a practice that takes me up and out and I'm visualizing, you know, all kinds of different realms beyond this realm. For advanced practices, those can be really useful, but for most of us as beginners, we're not able to integrate those experiences into our lives. And in a sense, they, they do or can support those um, more dissociative qualities. Now, I, I remember being at this ashram in India once and this pointed this out so perfectly, like very strict regiment of um, meditation, of listening to Dharma talks. And, you know, the food was not what us Westerners were accustomed to. And every day an orange juice vendor came to the ashram and, Everybody would be lining up just to get this fresh orange juice. And everyone was all dressed in white. Everyone was so pious and polite. And this one day, you know, the bells rang for meditation to begin. And this one woman who was about two people from the orange juice vendor just entirely freaked out and started yelling and screaming and swearing like I'm not going I need my orange juice and it was the perfect example of everyone acting as if 
they were really in this coherent regulated space when underneath that really wasn't what was happening for them and that they they in a sense although it wasn't cognitive it wasn't um like they were doing something wrong on purpose it was really much more acting as if they were in this very calm right centered place so many people uh find that you you have to deal with the emotional and somatic level to really heal from the ground up and numbers of the meditation teachers like jack rosenberg insight meditation society have written extensively about this he he said i spent 7 years sitting on a cushion and became this well-known teacher then i got married and had kids and i was back in my jewish family i had i was acting just like my father i had right. to go back and work therapeutically to really heal the emotional parts of my being as well i can't skip over that aspect and in so many spiritual traditions that's what people are trying to do i'll just skip over those places right right and that doesn't think, work <laughs> we know no, that no i discovered that myself and i'm actually um uh i read uh, bessel van der kolk's book yeah so he um either in a interview or something he said that uh look looking around the world he's done a lot of work around the world he he said that north americans who came from the european you know line mm-hmm. uh are a special kind of disembodied group of people so it's interesting when you said that when those buddhist teachers or those eastern traditions and i didn't know until you shared about how the culture had, was a more securely attached culture i don't know if that still stands um but how when the teachers came over they were met with a culture of people here who there was a bit more a uh, disconnection from our bodies going on and in the interview i listened to bessel van der kolk said that something to do with relating to after the world wars how the people medicating and numbing themselves out from from that and then how the next couple generations would have been impacted by being born from uh great grandfathers or grandfathers who or and the and the women who had had this huge traumatic event go on in their in their history. So, yeah, it was just an interesting perspective and a little bit connects to what you were sharing about where and, some of this might have come from. Yeah. And also the changing birth practices like yes, yeah. you know, starting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh much less breastfeeding, uh many interventions at birth. a lot of drugs um really yeah. change things and dr spock who was the authority for numbers of generations before us 
recommending four hour feeding patterns, etc. who in his 80s went on PBS and apologized to all those mothers, all those babies and really said, I was totally wrong. And here I am feeling like I created so much pain and suffering in this, in this world and in our culture for the really biologically incorrect advice that I shared with so many families. So yeah, a lot of things happened, you know, and if you look at Tibet, um, their practice of conceiving was like a two year preparation. And then um, really, what does this being need to attain enlightenment was their focus on the child. And, you know, everyone was uh, born in an unmedicated childbirth. Every baby was nursed. Mothers did not work away from the family in those traditional cultures where those spiritual practices and traditions arose. And I'm not saying it was perfect by any means. I mean, women died in childbirth, babies died. Um, People didn't always have enough food. I'm sure every family did not have secure attachment. You know, I don't want to idealize that culture. And of course, now it's very different too. All right. Well, I think, uh, I think we covered everything. Well, well, there's never covering everything. There's always so much more, but, um, but so much valuable information was shared. Uh, I was a bit nervous before going into this, but I also had the opportunity to interview a few people and work out some of the things that might make me nervous. And of course, whenever I talk with you, Myrna, you're always such a supportive presence. And so, yeah, I'm really happy that I'm happy that uh, on the most part, I felt good. (laughs) And I love, I'm glad we did this. Yeah. And I also, uh, your answers were above and beyond. Of course, I love the way you describe things. You're, and uh, you've taught a lot of this for years. And so you're very familiar with the information, but it's so eloquent and, um, I just love the way you put things together. So thank you. Thank you, Kendra. And do do send me the link. I'll put it on my Facebook page and tell people to listen to your other podcasts if they want to listen to this one. Great. Yeah. Well, what I've only um, put out two. I'm aiming for one a month right now because I want it to feel not overwhelming and attainable. I only just published my first two by the end of this month, I was hoping to publish one more and, um, yeah, but I'll share with you a link to what I've done so far. My, my kind of first official episode was kind of similar to what you, when I asked you to give a bit of history about how you got to where you are. I also kind of give a bit of a history about me as to why I, I wanted to do this. And uh-huh. yeah, so, yeah, perfect. Well, um, <laughs> I will let you go. And again, thank you so much. 
So I said thank you, and then the uh, audio ends a bit abruptly, but I am so grateful and appreciative for Myrna spending the time to clarify and, and share her knowledge on topics such as embodiment, attachment, early developmental trauma and trauma resolution, and the pre and perinatal time in our lives. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from Myrna as much as I enjoyed talking to her. So before we go, just going to check in with you to see that you can feel your feet on the ground, maybe feel yourself take a few deep breaths, and have just a little bit more of your body.